Thank you. We are continuing our journey through Mark's Gospel, and last week we concluded chapter number 4, where Jesus miraculously spoke to the wind and the waves and calmed the sea. And today we pick ourselves back up in verse number 1 of chapter 5. So in your copy of God's Word, if you would find your place in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verse number 1, I am going to read uh, the first 20 verses of Mark chapter number 5. So here we go, beginning in Mark 5, verse number 1, God's Word says, And they came, who is that? That is Jesus and His disciples, uh, to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And we got out of the boat. Immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance... He ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine... And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Well, you ought to pick up a few things just by hearing that passage of Scripture read. There's a whole lot of fear going on in here, is there not? I mean, people are frightened. Uh, the disciples are frightened in a ship 
this man is frightened in the presence of Jesus. The people are frightened when they see what Jesus had done. There's a whole lot of fear in this passage, and there's also a whole lot of begging. Did you notice that? There's a lot of people and a lot of demons begging Jesus for something. And as we put all this together, you know, I can't help but feel sorry for these disciples. I mean, we give them a hard time because they were just like us. They were a little bit thick-skulled. They were a little bit slow to get it, and they really didn't understand who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, notice what it was that they said at the close of chapter 4 after Jesus spoke to the wind, said, Hush, be still, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. He said to them, why do you have, or why are you afraid? Here's some more fear. How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, isn't it strange that the question that the disciples had is answered by a pack of demons? As soon as they see Jesus, notice what it is they say. What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Isn't it amazing that demons have better theology than most people do? Oh, they are without a shadow of a doubt in the know of who Jesus is and what His identity happens to be. But you can't help but feel sorry for these guys, even though they're thick-skulled and a little slow like we are. You've got you to gotta kind of relate to them because here they are in the middle of a sea. They are scared to death. They are seasoned sailors. They are fishermen. They know the sea like the back of their hands. And they are scared to death because their, water, their, their boat is awash in water and about to be swamped. They're scared. Jesus gets up. He speaks to the, to the storm, immediately calms it. They are scared. So lo and behold, they sail on through the night. Their boat finally bumps up on the sandy shore of the Sea of Galilee. They get out, and before they have time to bow down and kiss the dry ground, they're confronted with another source of fear. How would you like to have been there that day? Jesus steps out of the boat first, and all 12 of them right behind him, they are so thankful to be on dry ground, and out of nowhere comes the most horrific noise they've ever heard in their life. And they look up, and there's this huge naked man who is cut and bleeding, screaming at the top of his lungs, hard-charging them. What are you going to do in that situation? I mean, do you want to turn and bolt? Do you kind of step back a little bit and get behind Jesus? I mean, what do you do? I mean, can you sense these guys are saying, Dear God, we can't catch a break. Everywhere we go, things are against us. And now here they are in hand-to-hand -hand combat again with something that is bigger than they are and something that they can't control. And just about every person that I know would like to turn and run just as fast as he possibly could. I want to speak to you on this subject today. Just one man... And I've got to say, I have wrestled with whether or not to even preach this passage because I know when I preach a passage like this out of history, listen, this is not my first rodeo. I know when I preach a passage like this that it's going to open a can of worms. It's going to open a can of worms in the spirit realm 
but it's also going to open a can of worms for a lot of us. But I also know that by experience from preaching a passage like this that sometimes it puts the lid on the can of worms. And I'm praying today that it'll be the latter. Now here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to leave here today scared and I don't want you to leave here today diagnosing everybody that you know. Say, well, I know somebody who acts like that. Must be demon-possessed. Now, let's make it clear right up front. Demons are a part of our reality. They just are. And you know, demons are the very best that I know of contextualizing their message. Believers are not. When I say contextualize, I mean that's something that you must learn to do in order to present the gospel in culturally appropriate terms. Dane and I have spent the last 10 or 12 years of our life learning how to contextualize the gospel for the quilombolas of northeast Brazil. Demons do that. For instance, in a culture like we work in Brazil, demons are out in the open in your face. You ever had a demon speak to you, Dane? Absolutely. We encounter them on a regular basis down there and make no mistake about it, you know that it's a demon you're dealing with and they don't care if you know they come right out in the open. The reason they do that is because in that culture, whoever controls the most demons or whoever has the most demons is at the top of the totem pole. You see, we would think here if somebody's recognized as being demon-possessed, that would run them to Jesus Christ, but not in that culture. Because the one who has the most demons has the most spiritual power, therefore he's the most revered in the community. The witch doctor is always the richest man in any quilombola village where one exists. But you come to the United States and they have to contextualize their message a little bit differently, you see. Because demonic over here for us is something that we really don't believe in. As a matter of fact, we'll just give it a nice psychological name and make it sound like somebody's got a condition when really what they have is a demon spirit. So let's take this passage again and look at just one man because I see all through it an emphasis on just one man. And it may not be the same man, but at the same time there's emphasis on one man. So here we go. Let's take this passage and kind of dissect it a little bit and see what God's Word and God's Spirit would say to us today. Number one... This one man, now what man am I talking about here? This one man that the disciples and Jesus encountered as soon as their boat landed in the land of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes. This one demon-possessed man. So follow me here. This one man was the purpose of the entire trip. What trip? The trip across the Sea of Galilee. Now, you understand in three and a half short years of ministry on this earth, Jesus didn't do anything that was not in keeping with the Father's divine plan. He didn't have time to waste. Everywhere he went, he knew where he was going, he maximized his time, and he had a specific purpose. And I'm telling you, he didn't just cross that lake and encounter a storm and end up in the land of the Gerasenes by accident. He knew before he stepped foot on that boat that night with his disciples that he was headed to the other side because he had a divine appointment with just one man. One demon-possessed man. Now, I hope this blesses you a little bit, kind of in a backhanded way, because you understand that Jesus came 
from heaven to earth with you in mind. Friend, he didn't come here for no reason. He came here because he had you in his crosshairs. And I'm telling you, on that day when you had a saving encounter with Jesus Christ, it was about you. You see, everything that Jesus did was for God's glory, but for the good of us. As a matter of fact, he died on a cross. Paul quoted him when he was talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11 when Jesus said, This is my body which is broken for you. So it really is to some degree. And you know, we, we, we like to point out sometimes that it's really not all about us, but there's some parts of the gospel that is about us. You know, Jesus could have you on his calendar today. You're in the divine crosshairs and he has an appointment with you today. He crossed this lake that day, the entire trip was all about one man. And get this, this one man wasn't a desirable person, was he? I mean, this guy wasn't the president of the Chamber of Commerce over there. Uh, this guy wasn't uh, uh, sitting on the, the, the board of tourism. Uh, this guy wasn't a large landowner over there. This guy was a rabid demoniac, and Jesus crossed the lake, endured a storm to get to this one Man. Now notice what we learn from this. If this is really true that this one man was the purpose of the entire trip, then ladies and gentlemen, that could explain the storm that they encountered on the Sea of Galilee. Are you tracking along with me? Now let me show you a, a couple of reasons why I say that. Number one, Top-notch Bible scholars point out to us that the same word that Jesus used when they were on the sea, when He spoke to the wind, you see it translated, hush, be still? It literally means be muzzled. It's the exact same word that Jesus used one other time in Mark chapter 1. And do you know who He was talking to? He was talking to a demon. So there is a level of scholarship today that believed that this storm on the sea was demonically inspired. Now, is that a possibility? You better believe it's a possibility. It could have been. Now, I don't want to get into today with you theologically what the realm of control and what's, what, how much authority demons have, but here's what I am telling you. If Jesus was going over here to have an encounter with just one man, Hell will do everything it can to stop that encounter from taking place. If the devil knows that Jesus has you marked on his calendar today, he will do everything he can to stop you from making that appointment. Now look, he may be able to stop us, but thank the good God of heaven, he ain't got big enough britches to stop Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So you might run... You might avoid it, but I want to tell you something. If Jesus has you in his crosshairs, you might as well surrender because he's got you, Daddy. Because the devil ain't big enough to knock him off course. So here he is. He's crossing this lake. This storm comes up. Could it be that that was some attempt of the devil to get those disciples off the course to blow Jesus to the other side to do anything he could to keep him from making that appointment because he knows if the Lord gets to this man... I'm going to lose some ground. 
Now, can I say to you that as my experience, and Dane will tell you as well, back in the days before pandemic and when we were mobilizing five, ten churches a year for Brazil, here's what we would always teach them. Mark it down. When a church becomes a missional church and begins to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to places on this planet where folk have never heard His name, you just mark it down, you are going to encounter demonic resistance. You're going to encounter spiritual warfare. And we tell churches, it's not going to start when you get to the northeast Brazil and we get you in a Quilombola village. It's going to start as soon as you make a commitment in your heart to put your hand to the plow and take the gospel. So I can tell you what the devil's going to use. He's going to use everything and everybody he possibly can to get you to throw in the towel before you ever make the journey. And son, I want to tell you, we've seen him eliminate a ton of would-be missionaries and travelers. And they don't even recognize it. They think it's just happenstance or things got tough. Look, it got tough in that boat. But Jesus didn't say, boys, it must not be meant to be. Let's go back to the other side. So it could be the reason for the storm. And it could be the reason for the storm in your life. Because I want to tell you, if God is planning and He is planning to do something big in you and through you, the devil will do everything he can to keep that from happening. So it should be no surprise to us that we're going to encounter storms and opposition and spiritual warfare along the way. That's just the way it is. But you know what else Jesus was doing in this storm? At the same time the devil was trying to stop them, Jesus was trying to prepare them. Because, boys, if you're scared of this wind, this ain't nothing. There's really coming something to scare you. If this scares you, you ain't got a chance when this boat touches up on the shore over there. So you know what that storm was? That storm was kind of like a vaccination. It was like raising the threshold of fear in their life. Can I say to you, believer, God has not given you a spirit of fear. He hasn't. And I know so many people who let fear stop them from everything. Watch me. Doesn't matter what you're afraid of, that fear doesn't come from God. Doesn't matter if it's a fear of public speaking. Doesn't matter if it's a fear of flying. Doesn't matter if it's a fear of sharing your faith. That fear does not come from God. And here Jesus is, got them in a boat, exposed them to something that would scare them in order to raise their threshold. So can I ask you, how high is your fear threshold today? Because the storm put them right here, but guess what? The demon's going to take them to another level. You fail down here, you'll never make it up here. See what I'm saying? Conquer that stuff in the name of Jesus, or it'll keep you in the starting block and start and shoot the rest of your life and you'll never have anything accomplished of eternal significance. Alright. This one man was the purpose of the entire trip. That could explain the storm, but the Bible does explain how this condition starts. How what condition? The condition that this man was in. He was possessed, and the Bible tells us, by a number of demons. Uh, a legion was a, 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 a measure in the Roman army of more than 6,000 soldiers. 
So this guy had a horrific condition. So how does it start? Pastor Richie, how does somebody become so intertwined with evil until they are possessed by these fallen angels that are de demonic in nature? How does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us. Let me explain it to you. Notice with me what it is that Paul says in Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number 4 and verse number, I don't know, where is it? About verse number, what I mark on my paper, 27. Check out what Paul says. Now remember, Paul is writing to the church. Now, I don't want to get into this theological conundrum with you today. If you want to talk privately, we'll talk privately. But I don't want to get into this conundrum of whether or not a believer can be possessed with a, with a demon or not. But I am telling you that a demon can have influence in your life. And if he can influence you and control you, what difference does it make whether he's in here or sitting right next to me? The end result is the same. He's still controlling me. Now if that's no possibility, then Paul sure did waste a lot of ink writing to the church about the danger of the demonic. Now look what he says in verse number 27 of, of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Does anybody else have a different word for opportunity? Raise your hand. Anybody? Place. I love it. Do not give place to the devil. The Greek word behind that is the word topos. Now, if you are familiar with geography any at all, you know that we have maps today that are known as topo maps. When I get ready to take my bulldozer and clear a piece of property or put in a water hole or a pond, guess what the first thing is I look at? I want to see a topo map. Because a topo map will tell me the lay of the land, it'll tell me elevations, it'll tell me all sort of things that you can't get just from a satellite picture. That's the word that Paul uses. He says, do not give the devil topo. Do not give him geographical place. So here's what it is that the devil does. Let me, let me tell you how it is that he works. Demons work by right and ground. Did you hear me? Listen to me, believer. The devil can do nothing to you. Demons can do nothing to you that you do not give him the right and the ground to do. He can't come in and overpower you you must give it to him as a child of God. Now watch, here's how the word picture comes through in Ephesians chapter number 4. Let's say for a minute, and can y'all hear me when I turn around? I'm sorry to turn my back on you, but God, I draw on my board. Let's say that your life is represented by a 100 acre topos place. Are you with me so far? Right, now let's just say that you do what Paul says don't do. And you go and play with something that the Bible forbids. Fill it in, whatever you want to. Whatever the Bible says, don't mess with that, believer. Don't do this. Don't be affiliated. Don't be associated. Don't let that be named among you. You fill it in, whatever it is. You know I don't have to delineate it for you. You go and play with it, and here's what you do. You give the devil ground on your 100-acre topos. Now I want you to watch this. The devil's smart. You give the devil one acre of 100 acres. Most folks think, ah, you know, but I just like doing this, so it ain't going to control my life. 
I've got a hundred acres. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I'm just going to give him a little bit because I like doing this so much. Well, let me tell you what the devil does. The devil doesn't come into your life and set up camp over here on the perimeter fence. You give him topos, he's going to take the center one acre of your hundred acre life. Now, here's why he does that. Do you know that ever since antiquity, it is against the law to landlock somebody from what they own and from what ground they have? Can't be landlocked. So the devil sets up right here now in the center of your life. And let's just let this side of your life represent one segment. I mean, life has many dimensions, does it not? Let's let this section over here say, that's our family life. Let this over here be our work. Here's our profession. Let this up here be our spiritual life. Let's let this down here represent our recreation. You think you're fine, man. You got it all together. But you have given the devil place. And when you give him place, you don't get to decide what place he takes. He does. He works by right and ground. He moves in. He takes the center one acre. All of a sudden you say, you know, I don't want you on that acre no more. He says, sorry, you can't landlock me. As long as he's got that one acre, he can trample over your family to get to his one spot. He can trample over your job to get to his one spot. But wait a minute, i got 99 acres here. I should have more say-so. You don't. He's going to run through your recreation. He's going to run through your spiritual life. And that's how the devil controls so many believers today. Because you think, oh, you know, I only do that a little bit. It's not that big of a problem. It is a huge problem because the devil works, watch this old country preacher, by right and ground. The best thing you can do is kick him out. And when he goes out, allow Christ to slam the gate shut and station a divine guard there so he can't come back in. You hear me? I'm amazed at what believers play with. And you see, here's the purpose of, of, of Christian counseling. I'm a firm believer. Watch me. I'm going to show you in a minute. You can't counsel a devil out of somebody. You can't. But Christian-based, word-centered Christian counseling is about this. It's about examining your life and figuring out what window you open to let him in. And to start shutting windows. Boom. Boom, and it's like somebody walking through a house and just slamming windows shut. Because every time you do what the Bible says is forbidden, you open a window and you let him in. And that is the motive, that's the purpose, that's the strategy of counseling. Even though counseling can't evict him. We're going to see the only way to get him out in just a minute. Alright, here we go, number next. Hey, the demons work by right and ground. That's the only way they can work in your life, believer. If you give them right and you give them ground. Because they're going to take the ground that's right in the center so they can control you. Number next, demons have a specific goal. They have a specific goal. Now look here. I didn't have room on this outline to write everything, so you may want to write this down. Here's the goal of the demonic. Their goal is to deface the crowning expression 
of God's creative glory. Let me say it again. Their goal is to deface the crowning expression of God's creative glory. Do you know who that is? Take your finger and put it right here. There's only one thing that God created that bears His image. And the demonic wants to deface the image of God at all costs. It really don't have anything to do with you. It has to do with God. They hate God. And since you are an image bearer of God, they'll do anything they can to deface you and to ruin and to wreck your life. That's their entire goal. Hey, they don't play fair. Can I say that to you? They don't, they don't play nicely. They're out to deface God's image in you and basically make you like any other of God's creations, and that is an animal. You know, that's the difference between man and animals is the image of God. Well, guess what? If the devil can deface the crowning expression of God's creative glory, you know what that person, in effect, becomes? An animal. Notice what else this teaches us. How is it that these demons achieve their goal? I think there are four ways listed in here. How do they achieve their goal of defacing the crowning expression of God's creative glory? Here we go. Number one, in verse number two and three, through a fascination with death. Check this out. Look in verse 2 and 3. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, Mark tells us this twice, with an unclean spirit met him, he had his dwelling among the tombs. You see, there's something about the demonic that just brings with it a fascination with darkness and death. Now, can I say to you that it is no coincidence that heavy metal rock groups have names like Megadeth? Take that as you will. But you just go and look at how some of these things in pop culture are fascinated with death and with darkness. You ever seen kids today that dress completely in black, paint their fingernails black, wear black lipstick? Let me just go ahead and say, son, that's very dangerous because that gives every indication of the characteristics of the demonic. It just does. Now, notice this man had a fascination with death. Now, I don't want to paint myself into a corner, but let me say this. At the, and scholars recognize this. At the first coming of Jesus, it seems like there was an explosion of demonic activity. And it stands to reason. You know why? They knew God was up to something. And while Jesus was on this earth, it seemed like everywhere he went, he was encountering what? A demon. So it stands to reason the closer we get to his second coming, guess what we're going to experience? An influx and an exponential increase of demonic activity on this planet before he comes. Now, here's the deal. I don't want to give you stats because I don't want to bore you. You can look it up. I'll give you the sources if you'd like. But let me just say this. A generation ago, suicide was an old person's problem and normally it was just old people with terminal diseases a generation ago. 
And when I say generation, I mean 50, 60 years ago. That's all you ever heard of. Move forward to the times when universities started going into the flower child movement and liberation and, 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 and uh, what do you call that, liberalism and all that stuff. Guess where we saw suicide end up? On college campuses. So here we are, we're geniuses in the U.S., aren't we? Let's bar God from school. Then guess where suicide started taking off? In high school. Today, guess where suicide is a problem? Elementary school kids are taking their own life at an alarming rate. I'm telling you, the demonic, one of its chief characteristics is a fascination with death and the dark side. And here this man was, he lived amongst dead men's bones in tombs. It's just characteristic of the demonic. Now check out number two. How do they accomplish their goal? Number one, through a fascination with death. Number two, by an inability to be detained. Look in verse 3 and 4. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and chains had been torn apart, the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Supernatural strength. An inability to be detained. Now, can I say, speaking of physical strength, that we have seen this in the jungles of Brazil? I have personally watched a 16-year-old girl about the size of Julie. Julie, where are you? Where are you, Julie? Look how big and strapping Julie is. I mean, she's a, she's a Hercules, ain't she? I've seen a 16-year-old girl the size of Julie clear an entire room of big old burly men. They didn't nobody in the building have a doubt what was going on. Everybody there recognized it was demonic. And it was like a WWF wrestling match. So and after she cleared the room and picked up a few pews and threw them around, and after she had done put about five men who tried to calm her down on their backs on the ground, everybody else just stood back and let her go. Supernatural strength. This guy was breaking logging chains. Hey, you torn a phone book in half lately? <laughs> Until you torn a phone book in half, don't talk to him about breaking my five-eighths logging chains. This guy was breaking logging chains. They were putting iron shackles on his feet. The Bible says he was tearing them to pieces. You can't change somebody who's demonic. But watch me. I'm just not talking about physical strength. I'm talking about spiritually as well and morally. There is no rule they won't break. There is no morality or standard of morality that they won't run over. There is no way you can disciple them. There's no way you can rationalize with them. They just refuse. You ain't going to box a demon in. I'm sorry, you're not. He's going to always take whatever he wants. Number next, how do they accomplish their goal? Through a fascination with death, by an ability, inability to be detained, and then by being bent on self-destruction. Check this out. Verse number 5, constantly, night and day, he was screaming. You see that word screaming? In the original language, it means 
a blood-curdling howl in a subhuman voice. Now, I don't know if you've ever, you probably hadn't, because here in the United States, let's just be honest, the devil don't speak like that here because that would just scare you all to death. I mean, we, we would begin thinking then that the devil is real, and it's not just a psychological condition. But in Brazil, son, he speaks. And I'm telling you, when he speaks, it is a subhuman growl to where the hair on the back of your neck and your arms stand up. And that's what this guy was doing. And the Bible says he was doing it at the top of his lungs. Now look what he was doing. He was screaming out there. Now how would you like to have owned the property just next to the graveyard? Hmm? He was screaming like that all night. Look what else he was doing. He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones, cutting himself. That's why I said when he come running at these disciples, when they got out of that boat, he was a mass of bleeding bruised flesh because he'd been cutting himself. This guy was bent on self-destruction. And can I say, people who have a demon, do anything you want to do, they are hell-bent on destroying themselves. And they are pulling their life apart board by board by board. But you know, you don't even have to be demon-possessed to do that. Paul says the mind set on the flesh is death. All you got to do is focus more on fleshly things and spiritual things and let your life be controlled by that direction and you'll destroy your silly self. Why are we our own worst enemies? I don't know. I got to run. Notice what else. They, 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 they accomplish their goal by a fascination with death, through a fascination with death, by an inability to be detained, by being bent on self-destruction, and watch this one, by living in a constant dilemma. Verse number 10, check this out. And he began, who is he? He is the man who has the demons. Began to beg him, who is him, Jesus, earnestly not to send them out of the country. Here's a, here's a characteristic of somebody demon-possessed. Normally, they live in a constant dilemma. They hate their life, but they don't want to do anything about it. Are you following me? I'm miserable. I'm cutting myself with stones. I'm crying in the tombs at night. But hey, please don't send my demons away. Do you see a conflict there? Do you see the dilemma? It's like this guy wants help. He's running to Jesus, but at the same time, the Bible says he's begging him, don't send my demons away. My goodness. This guy's living, being torn apart in a constant dilemma. What do I want? Do I want to be free or do I want to have my demons? Do I want to be free or do I want to have my demons? And look, you don't have to look very hard to find somebody who claims to be a believer doing that same very thing. Why is it that four weeks ago we had 191 folk here in this building and today we can muster 80? Because there's so many people that they want to be a good person. They want to follow Christ. But they love their demons a little bit more. And they want to hold on to that. They want the devil to keep that one acre in their, in their life. And therefore, they live in a constant dilemma. Boniface full of people this morning know where they ought to be. But you know what? They just ain't strong enough to be here. The dilemma is causing them to collapse. 
and they're giving in every time to the demonic influence in their life. i got to hurry. Check this out. This one man was the purpose of the entire trip. Number two, there is one man who poses a problem for them. One man and one man only. Do you know what his name is? Oh, the demons do. The demons said, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Look, you are no match for the demonic. Did you know that? I am no match for the demonic. There's only one who can and has taken care of them. Now check this out. Notice, let me show you just how he poses a problem for them. Because number one, before him, demons are powerless. Look what, the, look what the scripture says in verse number 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now let me give you the picture here of what the original language is expressing. This ain't just him running up because he sees Jesus and he wants to go up and worship him. No, here's what's happening. He is running as a madman screaming those subhuman yells, bleeding, and the disciples are probably thinking about now, dear God, I wish I was anywhere in the world but right here. Their only hope is that Jesus is standing next to them. And this man runs up, and it's not that he just comes down and bows and wants to worship him. Here's what the language represents. This man comes running up as if he's going to attack. And as he gets within the spiritual force field of the Son of God, his knees just turn into jello. Boop! He hits the ground, and he looks like he's a squeeze play on Major League Baseball. A guy hard charging from third base to home plate, and he just dives, and he just rakes up the ground. Matter of fact, the word that's used here means to hit your head on the ground. So this guy had strawberries on his forehead, kind of like I did last week. And you know why he did that? Let me tell you why. He probably had bad intentions. He's going to run up there and mess somebody up. But he wasn't planning on the fact that he has no power at all in the presence of Jesus. And about the time he got within range of Jesus, his knees were cut out from under him and strength left him. Boop! And here he goes. And all he can do is have his face planted in the sand and begin to talk to Jesus as he's spitting dirt out of his mouth. It's amazing to me. But in the presence of Jesus, hear me, demons are rendered powerless. We're talking about a man who was breaking logging chains. We're talking about a man that nobody was strong enough to subdue him. Breaking iron fetters. Jesus doesn't say a word, just stands there. And he can't even stand up. Matter of fact, he skins his head up. He plows the dirt up when he hits the ground so hard. And notice what goes on next. Before him, demons are powerless. But before him, demons can only seek permission. That's all they can do is permission. You know what's, what's crazy is here's these big old bad boys, right? They take a 16-year-old girl and they clean out a room of big old strapping men. They're bad boys, right? But when it comes to Jesus, they're reduced to kindergartners. And all they can say is, Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And if Jesus says no, sit there and go on yourself. <laughs> That's what they have to do. Because they can't do anything that he doesn't give them permission to do. Matter of fact, that word is used often in association with missions. Check out some of the prior demon encounters uh, in Mark chapter 1. And it uses that word that Jesus did not permit them to do this. Did not permit them to do that. But look what happens right here in, uh, in this verse. Notice what the Bible says about, about Jesus. Uses that very word. 
verse number 13. Jesus gave them what? Permission. Before Jesus, demons are absolutely powerless. Before Jesus, they can't do anything that He doesn't expressly give them the consent to do. Stay with me. We're not done here. By Him, the cure is provided. See, I done told you before, you can't counsel a demon out. You ain't going to talk him out. You ain't going to bribe him out. The only way he's getting out is when Jesus tells him, by golly, your days in this house are over. You are evicted. Hit the road, Jack. That's the only way you can get rid of him. Now, notice, notice something about this cure that Jesus provided. In verse number 8, for he had been saying to him, you see, it's like Jesus entered into a conversation without saying a word. Come out of him, you unclean spirit. Interesting, he calls him unclean spirit. The demons always lead us into degradation and filth. Always, that's where you're headed. Because they're wanting to deface the crowning expression of God's creative glory. Now, notice something about this cure. I want you to see it. Number one, I think we can say that the cure is profound. It's profound. What do I mean? I mean, even people who have the spiritual IQ of a cricket mole can see it. You don't have to be a spiritual giant. Look in verse number 15. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Here's some, some things I want you to write down about this profound cure. Number one, Jesus cleaned him up. I want to say something to you. One of the devil's most famous lines is, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church, I'm going to get right with God, but I've got to clean myself up first. The devil just told you a lie, dude. You can't clean yourself up. There's only one that can clean, you, that can clean you up, and that's Jesus. Jesus cleaned that old guy up. He came and was clean. Notice what else he was. The Bible says he was sitting down. That means he was calm. calm. These people had never seen this guy anything but a wild man. And looking at you from behind his eyes was a thousand demons. And now this guy's calm. He's sitting down. He's calm. Not only was he calm, but he was coherent. The Bible says he was in his right mind. You could have a conversation with this guy. Formerly, all he would do is scream and make those subhuman growls. And now he's coherent. But here's what got me. The Bible says he was clothed. Stop and think about this. This man had been living in a tomb. Luke tells us he probably hadn't put on a pair of jeans in eight or ten years. His normal attire, if you saw him, was a birthday suit. He was always naked. He didn't have any clothes. There certainly wasn't a walk-in closet in any of them tombs. Where did he get clothes? Say it. There's only one explanation. Jesus clothed him. And can I say that's what he does with everybody that comes to him. He clothes them. Now, the prodigal son, what did the daddy do as soon as he got there? He put a robe on him. And here in theological terms is what Jesus does. He dresses you in his righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. 
I'm telling you, the Bible calls it imputed righteousness. When you come to Him, He cleans you up and He puts His righteousness around you. Clothed in the glory of God once again. You know, the devil tried to deface the creative expression of God's glory in this man. And Jesus says, it ain't going to work, scratch. And He put a robe on the dude. I'm telling you, that didn't just change his, his physical appearance. It changed everything about him. A profound cure. Check out what else the Bible says. Not only is this cure profound, but I think the Bible indicates this cure is permanent. Notice what this man wanted to do. This man wanted to be with Jesus. Look in verse 18. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Can I say this to you? Watch me. If Jesus cleans you up, if He causes you to be coherent, you want to stay close to Him. Do you not? You want to stay in the presence of this one who's done this for me, just me, just me. He did it for me. You want to stay in His presence. Again, that's what's so contradictory with so many folks who name the name of Christ and want to stay as far away from Him as they can. That's characteristic of something else. Not transformation and a profound cure. It's permanent. I think one of the reasons why he wanted to be with Jesus may have been he knew in the presence of Jesus that demon is powerless. He just took my feet out from under me as long as those demons were in me and didn't even put a finger on me. Nobody could detain him. And just in the presence of Jesus, his legs turned to spaghetti noodles and he's laying down prostrate with his head bleeding where he hit the ground hey the man wanted to stay in Jesus presence because he may have been afraid if he got out of his presence the demons had come back can I say to you he may not be totally wrong but here's what Jesus does when Jesus cleans you up he doesn't leave your house empty he fills you with the presence of his spirit that's why the Bible says be filled. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, if your hundred acres is full of God, then the devil don't have any ground. There's no room in there for him. The only way you're subject to the devil moving in and taking ground is if you're only half full of the Spirit of God. When you're full, he don't have any right. He doesn't have any place on your farm. So check out this. Not only is this cure permanent, but I think we can also say that this cure was published. Check it out. This man wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, I came over here on purpose to cure you. And here's part of the purpose. Look what the purpose was. Jesus said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. Can you imagine what happened when he went back? Because this word, it's literally is go back to your own. Your own what? It could be your own family. Could you imagine? Little Johnny's out playing in the yard. Eight years old. Looks up and he sees this guy walking. But he's not acting like his daddy. My daddy used to be a madman. Used to be screaming. Used to be full of blood. Used to be naked. That looks like my daddy, but it can't be him. Because this man's coming down the road. He's clothed. He's got his hair combed. He's got his teeth brushed. Maybe Jesus gave him some dental implants, Dr. John. I don't know. But he's looking different. And little boy's scared. He gets up, runs in, says, Mama, 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 
Lock the doors quick. It looks like Daddy's on the way home. And wife goes into a panic. Dear God, I thought he was in the tombs and wasn't coming back anymore. She slams the door shut. And look, and here comes Daddy down the road. Had an appointment with Jesus. Got cleaned up. Mama says, what in God's name has happened to you? He said, let me tell you something. I didn't do anything. He said, I was in my tomb one day cutting myself. And all of a sudden the demons went crazy within me and we started running down toward the beach. I didn't know what was going on, but they knew that Jesus was coming. And Jesus threw every one of them out of me, babe. And he set a seal on my heart. They can't come back. And I just want you to know your husband's home. Son, you reckon that had any impact on mama? You reckon that had any impact on little Johnny and little Susie? And what do you reckon happened when they went to school next day and say, hey, our daddy's home. And everybody said, wait, what, what, what? <laughs> he's back where? He's in our city? Oh, but yeah, you won't believe he's different. We don't believe that. What do you reckon happened when they brought daddy to school and he told them what happened? What do you reckon happened is daddy began to tell all the people that knew about him what happened? I'm telling you what happened. Those garrisons began to get a good understanding of who Jesus Christ was. And watch me, it's no different for us. You know why he saved you? So that you can go to your own. And if they won't believe what you say, they can't deny what they see. Because you're a different person. I got to hurry. Woo, look at them nursery workers. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm almost through, I promise. I promise. Check this out. There's one man who poses a problem for him. There are some men for whom the price is too high. Check this out, and I'm done. Look what these bonehead Gerizim said to Jesus. Verse 17. They began to implore him to leave their region. Hey, we don't want to have none of that stuff around here, Jesus. You know what the deal was? The deal was they loved their pigs more than they loved people. They loved their pigs more than they loved people. Why? Hey, I, I'm not knocking it. 2,000 head of pigs a lot of do-ray me. You hear me? But how much is that man worth? Jesus had his priorities right. You ever been guilty of loving money more than people? That's what these folk did. So you can't serve two masters. And let me just close with this. They begged Jesus to leave. It is a dangerous thing to ask Jesus to leave you alone. You know why? Why is it dangerous? Because he what? He will. What did he do? Did he say, you can't tell me where to go. I'm the Lord of glory. I'll stay right here if I want. No, nope. you ask him to leave, and guess what he does? He turned around and got in his boat, and he said, see y'all later. And he sailed to another place. For some people, the price is just too high. They'd rather have their pigs than have Jesus. They asked him to leave. In Jesus' name, don't do that. We're talking about the difference in eternal destinations here. Let this one man transform your life. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your word.